my experience was when I was walking in the direction that wasn't that, I would experience truth aches. They can come in many forms, depression, you know, uh, substitute gratifications, um, you know, endlessly spending money, beating the shit out of people. <laughs> you shouldn't beat the shit out of I mean, you know, well, the individual has to decide what their bones and their being are telling them is an indicator they're off path. For me, it was very clear. You know, I had spiritual emergencies. I had nervous breakthroughs. I had agitations. I would have dreams and, and nightmares and all kinds of things that would tell me if I walked in one direction, like becoming a trial lawyer. In fact, after being called to the bar, that I would suffer immeasurably. But in order to hear those truth aches, you have to have a measure of self-awareness. And this is where it's challenging because most of us are adapted and armored and are living in a survivalist consciousness, not an authentic one. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men This Way. Are you living just to survive or to fulfill your soul's purpose? And what's the cost of not living your soul's purpose? How can you even know if you're living your soul's purpose, your soul's path? And how do you navigate the need to pay the bills or show up for your loved ones and the drive to live your soul's calling today? Well, in this episode, my guest, The brilliant author Jeff Brown and I mine these questions and more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. I was so excited for this conversation with Jeff. My lady, Sylvie, has been a longtime fan of his work. She often shares his wisdom on her Instagram page. And I didn't realize it until I started doing more research on Jeff, but I actually saw a documentary he produced called Carmageddon years ago. Carmageddon with a K. It was a deeply insightful documentary about his fascinating and rather disturbing experience hosting in his home an essentially narcissistic, boundary-violating musical guru who had a particular affinity for teenage women. And this was well before the Me Too movement. And I wonder how that so-called guru teacher is being received these days. Anyway, what I so love about Jeff's work and his writing, which I first witnessed in him in his documentary, is that he brings firmly grounded perspective to the often lofty and disembodied heights of modern spirituality, where so many modern spiritual teachers and coaches are using spiritual ideas and concepts such as non-identification with form and detachment from suffering as grounds for actually abusing people and causing people to dishonor their own critical human boundaries. And Jeff seizes on that insanity to bring spirituality back to earth, into the body, so that spiritual practice serves to deepen and enrich our human experience, not merely bypass it. Jeff is the author of six books, including his most recent release, Grounded Spirituality. The book that I read to really prepare for this conversation with Jeff was Soul Shaping, A Journey of Self-Creation. It's his autobiographical account of his journey to awakening to his soul's calling. And of course, all the forces arrayed against him, both the inner forces like self-doubt and survival thinking, and also the outer forces that our world makes real, like the very real need to make money and the persistent reality that one's Soul calling is often at odds with the modern world's monetary system. In other words, despite all the hallmark spirituality out there and the countless social media influencers who caption their luxury resort photos with trite assurances that if you just leap, you'll grow wings, the truth is that even in today's world of seemingly endless possibilities, following your soul's calling often won't be financially rewarding at least not for a very uncomfortable amount of time. (laughs) That certainly has been my experience. 
And I love that Jeff leans straight into such widely perpetuated inspirational cliches that sing in sometimes painful dissonance with everyday reality. Jeff's book quickly became one of my all-time favorites. Even just today, I gave it to a client of mine going through a massive life transition. And Jeff the Man is now one of my favorite men. Although we've just met, based on what I've witnessed through his work, and now through our conversation that you're about to hear, I already know I deeply trust this man in his integrity to just be real with me. Definitely stay tuned for Jeff's five key takeaways at the end of this episode of Men This Way. All right, let's dive. Jeff Brown, sir, it is such a pleasure to have you on Men This Way. I've been waiting for this moment a long time. Mm. Welcome. My pleasure, Brian. Yeah, thank you. When I told my lady, Sylvie, that I was going to have you on, she did it. She actually danced. She celebrated. She's been a huge fan of your work, as I know, countless thousands of people out there. And I feel like you're a man whose who's heart and mind and, and your journey, like you're where I feel my destiny is taking me in terms of Grounded Spirituality, which is your new book. Yeah. And by the way, how does it feel to have another book? I know you had boxes <laughs> in your living room not long ago filled with the books. How does it feel? God, you know, I mean, it, I mean, at first it felt, I was shocked to have survived this book. You know, I, mm-hmm. I felt like it, either I was going to finish it or it was going to finish me. And mm-hmm. well, I was just recovering for a, um, a month or more from this process. And now I'm just starting to settle into this really uh, profound feeling of satisfaction of my sixth book. And, and it feels like it's the culmination of so much of the, what the journey has been for me, mm-hmm. and particularly the expressive journey and the internal integration journey. And I feel like I, um, I said everything I really need to say in this book, and I can just stop writing books now. How long do you think that'll actually last? About another week and a half, probably. <laughs> but it's a wonderful, wonderful yeah. week and a half to come. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally, I totally get that. Yeah. How long? Now, I know it's been a lifetime in the making, that book, but how long did you actually, was the process actually? Yeah. Well, I started to write, so part one of the book, just to, to share it briefly, is, is sort of my journey. It's about 60 pages. And I started to work on that even before I'd written An Uncommon Bond. So I had a document that by the time I sat down to write this book, formally write it, was four or 500 pages long. Wow. But the main part of it, which is the dialogues between me and a fictitious seeker named Michael, which is about 350 pages, that took only about 18 months. And, you know, that's why it was so difficult. If I'd written it over a five-year period, I would have been a more balanced person. But I wanted to move through this to get on to the next things that I want to do. And it mm-hmm. felt kind of urgent to get this book into the world. It, my other books, in a way, felt like they weren't perfectly timed culturally. I feel like this book is perfectly timed mm. culturally. And fortunately, I had a brilliant editor named Amy Gallagher who was with me pretty much every step of the way and deeply with me through this mm-hmm. process. Otherwise, we never could have completed it in an 18-month period. And it's 408-page books, so it's, you know, Soul Shaping was a 200-page book. So this was yeah. a whole different journey. And I'm older, and I have a more complicated life, and I married it. You know, I'm just not a guy alone in the room with a cat anymore. So it's more complicated. My following is much larger. My companies are much more active. So this was really quite a, I mean, this forced me to be as deeply grounded as I've ever been in order to create, uh, get through a creative process. But yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I've written, I've got one real book on Amazon. When I say real book, I mean, I wrote another book, but that was more like a pamphlet. I have a real book on Amazon and it took me three years and 10 drafts and Man is a fucking marathon. Yes, sir. I mean, you, you've got to be called yeah. by the book. And that still doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but you're going to get some kind of a deep, soulful satisfaction from the process. Yeah. Otherwise, I tell people don't do it. I mean, it's yeah. a masochistic path. If you don't have a calling, yeah. you're going to suffer. And at the end of the day, probably not make very much money from it. So it's, you got to be sure before you step in that direction that it's something you really have to do in this lifetime. Yeah, I find a good check for me is if I do this and it completely fails, in other words, the outcome I'm hoping for, which is the world embraces it, I make tons of money, it sets up a whole new life for me. If that doesn't happen and I still feel deeply satisfied, then it's probably worth moving forward. Well, that's sacred purpose because sacred purpose isn't driven by the unhealthy ego or financial concerns. It's It's like a spiritual imperative, you know? Yeah, 
Yeah. And I think this sets up our conversation really well because I know the the topic of grounded spirituality is something that I'm actually really excited to explore with you in another conversation. I, I think what I really want to dive in with you, although I know it's all connected, but where I want to start with you, Jeff, is this soul's calling. And by the way, one of the things that I so love about your work too is your knack for wordplay, actually, mm. like soul etude. Time Alone with the Soul, one of my favorites, A Truth Ache, the nudging sense of falsity, hunger for the true path. And, you know, I know a lot of our listeners and man, I've wrestled with this throughout my life. And even still, you know, I'm, I'm almost 45 and I'm doing what I love. And at the same time, there are these endless temptations to go this way or go that way. There's pressures in relationship to do this, do that. So I think your book, Soul Shaping, is such a beautiful study in that false path, true path, navigating that. And so I would wonder like, if we could just start here, because I think a lot of men, we kind of maybe have an inkling that there's something off or there's a true path versus false path. Like, but how do we even begin to know when we're on, like, what's the difference anyway between false path and true path? Well, so in the way that I understand things now, which I think is more consolidated than it was when I was, figuring things out more when I wrote Soul Shaping. It's become almost very simple for me, mm. although living it is very complicated. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I really believe that we come into this lifetime with an encoded path. Call them soul scriptures, call them entelechy, call them what James Hillman called it, an innate image for who you could become in this lifetime. And I call it now sacred purpose, and I write about sacred purpose. You know, um, And I feel as though it has many components. It's not just the great calling to change and save the world, the Oprah Winfrey-esque path or direction. It, For me, sacred purpose is very broad. It includes also the unhealed emotional material, the patterns and issues that we're here individually and collectively to work through as part of our transformation. So there's the linkage to grounded spirituality. For me, emotional maturation and spiritual maturation are the same thing, right? So sacred purpose is a very broad-based experience. So it's and wherever there's growth, there's purpose. We could think of it in simple terms. Mm-hmm. And if men are comfortable with this language, just the Jack Kennedy quote, happiness is full use of one's powers is helpful too. You know, mm-hmm. So it's really about actualizing all of these aspects in what I would consider to be a polyphrenic soul experience, a multi-aspected soul. And my experience was when I was walking in the direction that wasn't that, I would experience truth aches. They can come in many forms, depression, you know, uh, substitute gratifications, um, yeah. you know, endlessly spending money, beating the shit out of people. <laughs> you shouldn't beat the shit out of them. I mean, yeah. you know, well, the individual has to decide what their bones and their being are telling them is an indicator they're off path. Yeah. For me, it was very clear. You know, I had spiritual emergencies. I had nervous breakthroughs. I had... I would have agitations. I would have dreams and, and nightmares and all kinds of things that would tell me if I walked in one direction, like becoming a trial lawyer. In fact, after being called to the bar, that I would suffer immeasurably. But in order to hear those truth aches, you have to have a measure of self-awareness. Mm-hmm. And this is where it's challenging because most of us are adapted and armored and are living in a survivalist consciousness, not an authentic one. So we don't know where to look for those indicators. Yeah, We have to have more time in nature and have more solitude and do more emotional work. And, and so for me, I had indicators from an early age. I was very aware. I would sit in undergrad university and write on the sidebar, you are not who you appear to be. And I was talking about myself. I wasn't talking about the professor. So for whatever reason, I knew that there was this distinction between who I was meant to become and who I wasn't. And you know, for people who haven't reached that level of awareness where they can't even hear that voice inside of them, the path for me is always good through the body. They have to do somatic work around the emotional body, clear all of the debris because clearing the emotional debris gives them energy and space to embody the next step on their journey. But it also allows them to have space to hear the voice from within that's trying to call them in another direction. Yeah, I really get that. And and I think also what you said, the distractions that we find, you know, whether it's video games or pornography or alcohol and drugs or work for that matter, these are all ways that, that I know I can certainly use to avoid feeling anything. Right. And so one of the biggest problems for all of us as men and for women is that we do live in a world that's organized around a more survivalistic consciousness. So very often, for example, being a workaholic is economically rewarding and creates more of a sense of security for our vigilant consciousness. Yeah. 
the authentic path often pulls us out of a survivalist consciousness, and we have to do things that are not always materially as beneficial or gratifying. So it's very complicated. You have to develop a very subtle awareness and a real connection internally to begin to understand the difference and the question, the primary question for me always, not what was I doing, but why was I doing it? You know, you have to constantly, for years and years, ask yourself the question, what is motivating this action? Is this true path or am I moving for some other reason that's not about moving in the direction of my encoded path? One of the things that also really strikes me is in this conversation is our relationship to death. I think you pointed this out as well in Soul Shaping that death terrifies when we are not living our soul's path. Right. My greatest fear was that I would die not walking true path. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think when you find some, I mean, true path changes, it's not a fixed place, but moving in the direction of that, which is growthful, there is a kind of gratification. It is a kind of buffer against the madness of the world, your own madness in a way, and against those feelings of deep dissatisfaction that most people are experiencing moment to moment because they are not honoring the path that's encoded within them. You know, when you begin to, it's not like you don't have to deal with the question of death, but you deal with it in a completely different way. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I love, and this is what I so love about your work too, Jeff, is, is you really, and I know this is what grounded spirituality I think is about. You really, you hold both worlds that you hold the spiritual dimension and yet you don't lose touch with our everyday reality of being in a body. Well, well, I, well I don't understand the spiritual dimension independent of my everyday reality. I, I don't even know what those bypassing <laughs> bypassers are, are talking about. I, right. I mean, I am so grounded. I am so Jewish. I am so in my feet. I've knocked on more doors in North America selling product than yeah. a guy on this continent in the last yeah. Hundred years. Yeah. One step after another, one door after another, never missing a house in the subdivision. I missed flyer delivery in my window business more than anything else mm. because I love being in my feet because when I'm in my feet, I feel like I'm in my spiritual experience. I don't know how to distinguish spirituality and humanness. I don't even know what all these people are talking about. <laughs> you just seem really drugged out on a meditation stupor with no energy vitality, nothing coming through them and calling themselves spiritual. I think it's utterly preposterous to call that spirituality. For me, spirituality is reality. So the more connected we are to all threads of this human experience, the more spiritual we are. And those men in particular, but not only men who are perfecting one singular thread, master meditators, whatever they call themselves, I call that masturbation because all they're doing is perfecting a thread and not developing any of the others. I'd rather be a jack of all trades than, and a master of none than a master of one particular thread that I've perfected and disconnected from everything else. For me, the former is a way more spiritual way of being than the latter is. So almost everyone who calls themselves a spiritual teacher in my mind is not spiritual at all. Yeah. And I think there's this idea in kind of that spiritually bypassing mindset that you don't have to worry. Life is going to work out, you know, follow your bliss. Like Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss. I really, you know, that quote actually goes on beyond just follow your bliss. It's also, if it's just your fun and your excitement, that's not it. You need instruction to find where your bliss is. That's the full quote of Joseph Campbell's follow your bliss. But I think there's this idea in, in the spiritual circles and, um, One of my great regrets as a coach, there are two that I have, and one in particular happened a few years back where I had just one session with a man and um, he came to me, he was very excited and he was going through a divorce. His wife was kind of kicking him out and he had a job with a defense contractor. Now I'm former military. I've worked with defense contractors. I mean, I come from that world. I know that world well. And this man was, I think, you know, in retrospect, I think he might've just been kind of having a manic episode almost, or he just was exhilarated at this transition that was happening. And he was coming to me for, for counsel. Should I, should I leave my job tomorrow, Monday and resign everything and, you know, follow my dream. I want to be a writer. And I mean, he's in his probably late forties has had children. And, and all I did was just kind of mirror back to him. Wow. Sounds like you're clear. Sounds like, you know, my own sort of spiritual bypassing. And I'll never forget a few months later, not to say that there was anything, you know, again, the spiritual bypass, nothing wrong with it, but I do see how I was irresponsible as the man he came to for counsel in that a few months later, he was just, he'd hit bottom. He was driving for Uber and Lyft and living in a rundown little apartment. Like his dream was nowhere to be found. He felt just this kind of disowned from his family and all this stuff. And I just remember thinking, you know, it took me some time to put this together, but 
I felt like I really did him a disservice by not helping him kind of slow down and really take some time with what he was going through and really feel what he was going through rather than take action from this place of just sort of excited, you know, again, sort of the spiritual euphoria of, oh, I have an insight. I need to throw everything out the window, <laughs> jump off the cliff because they say you'll, you'll grow wings when you jump. You know, Brian, if that's what you were dealing with, I'm not really sure you could have done a whole lot at that moment. Um, yeah. In fairness to you. I mean, you know, I mean, the secret did this to millions of them, you know, mm-hmm. people with good intentions who decided they were meant to be yoga teachers, sold the house, studied, <laughs> went to India, did the whole thing, came yeah. back and couldn't make a hundred bucks a week. I mean, this is an old story. That's called ungrounded spirituality. So yeah. you know, for me, when you talk about bridging both worlds, what I am aware of very deeply as a door knocking window salesman for all those years yeah. and one who actually misses it is is that I really understand that, you know, I couldn't craft anything creatively or what they call spiritually if I was worried about money all the time. I'm too neurotic when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. And in a way, my neurosis has saved me from becoming the biggest bypasser you've ever met. I mm-hmm. would love nothing more yeah. than to be a hardcore spiritual bypasser. I think it's a wonderful, delightful <laughs> path, especially if you're like a trust fairy and then your parents are taking care of business. You know, uh-huh. I just am too neurotic about money to ever be that person. I also have a Jewish liver, so I can't do drugs and alcohol. I would uh-huh. love to do drugs and alcohol, but I am forced, the good yeah. Lord somehow forced yeah. to live in reality and to write about reality and trying to find a connection to this thing we call spirit somewhere in this human fracas, which has really been the call for me. Yeah. Well, I'm not Jewish, but I am attracted to women who may as well be Jewish by that description. In other words, they keep me grounded. I've never really partnered with a woman who let me get away with any kind of adolescent bypassing bullshit. Isn't that the worst thing? I mean, you cannot sleep in the car and call yourself <laughs> to the Jews because they will not want to sleep in the car with you. Yeah. It's they true. want you to I, pay for the rent or a mortgage or take care of business. And they're right, for God's sakes. I mean, who? I mean, you can do that for a while, but really, it's not really a sustainable way of life, I don't think. And so, again, there's men listening. And again, I know I've been there many times and I can still find myself there at times. You know, I want to trust that my destiny will be fulfilled, do what I came here to do, all of that. And yet people do die all the time, completely, deeply unfulfilled angry, resentful, alone, estranged from loved ones, estranged from themselves, regret-filled. It happens constantly. Everywhere. So, you know, I'm thinking of one of my closest friends who kind of is struggling with that. You know, he's really immersed in his life, you know, wife, kids, job, that that's good enough, but not, doesn't really light him up. And yet there's a calling to like do his art in the world. And yet, you know, living in the tension, what often happens is he kind of, he just checks out their video games because he can't, he has a hard time to sort of resolve that. It's hard to hold all of that. You know, it's hard to hold all of that. I mean, so what I think works, what worked for me is to hold them both to the extent possible. So I knew I had to take care of the bottom line. I didn't have children. I didn't have to take care of another person. I mean, some family members, but I I didn't have those responsibilities. But I had a need to take care. I wanted to own a home. My parents lost a house. My grandparents lost a house. It was very psychologically important for me to be a homeowner. So I really did have that push inside of me. And I also knew I wanted to move in the direction of that which called me, which was not always about pragmatism. I sold windows because I needed to, not because I really loved the experience of it. So I began to move into writing, which was the most prominent experience of the calling since criminal trial law and really the one that I knew I had to move into in increments you know I moved into it in increments I kept taking care of the bottom line and then eventually it became more of who I was and when it became more of who I was then the interface changed between the who I was now and the pragmatic reality I had to deal with so I brought more of that energy into the salesmanship So I was able to hold both of them without bifurcating my consciousness. Mm -hmm. When I started to sell windows as a student, knock on doors, I used to go in the Johnny on the job in the subdivisions. And before I would knock on those doors, I would say to my soul self, I will be back at the end of the weekend. But Mm -hmm. for now, I have to go and make money. 
Mm. I had a conversation with these aspects of myself at an early age. And eventually it reached a point where I did no longer had to have that conversation because now I was in a more integrated state. But that took 15 to 20 years of holding both realities and then finding a way to turn this writing path by becoming a publisher and not published by others into an economically gratifying path. So it happens, but you have to do it in increments in order for it to be a sustainable experience. So I think what I'm hearing is, and you know, again, I I was in the military, 26 years old. Again, no kids though, no kids. I had a partner at the time, and but I ended that relationship when I got out of the military because I felt useless to the world. I was so not connected to my my soul path, if you will. The contrast between what I was asked to do in the military, asked is a very kind word, and somewhere inside I felt called to do. The contrast was so massive that I was dead inside at age 26. And I did that threw myself off the deep end. But again, I had no responsibilities. And there are some men out there that may be in that a similar kind of boat where they can just kind of chuck it all, chuck everything they've got out the door and and vagabond around until they in fact, one of the things that I really love that you said, in your book, again, another one of your brilliant wordplays flake it till you make it. Yeah. Flake yeah. it till you make it. <laughs> you know, I, I don't even like that one anymore. It just, it feels so damn flaky. But yeah, at the time I, I thought it was so brilliant because, you know, it, I mean, it really meant just surrendering to this not knowing until things started to make sense to you directionality wise. And now it often ends up meaning, you know, people walking a path that's completely ungrounded and unsustainable. I wasn't talking about that because I was still taking care of the bottom line, but yes. allowing myself to really surrender to the not knowing in all of that time, you know, when you talk about people with kids and families, it's a whole different reality. And I think it comes back to the question of teaching people at a very young age about this thing called sacred purpose, you know, because if you teach this and if people and kids at a very young age begin to ask themselves, who am I? Who am I really? Why am I here? How do I stay here in my body, in this embodied experience, know who I am here, find my path within myself and actualize in the world. If this was the kind of inquiry that you could bring to the lives of children from an early age, a lot of them would choose not to actually partner and marry and have children at mm-hmm. the age that they do because mm-hmm. they realize that they're not clear enough yet, not clarified enough yet as to the direction they want to walk. And once you've walked in that direction, you have those responsibilities and you're a good hearted person, it becomes very complicated to find your way out of that. Yeah, I wonder if that's a kind of a 21st century luxury that we have that really hasn't been available till now, that we don't need to partner as young as we used to need to partner for the sake of survival. Right. Right. We don't need, we don't have that need anymore. I, I really wish someone would have told me in my twenties and thirties, Hey man, it's okay. You don't have to be in a relationship. Chill out. You can partner at 50. I mean, you can never partner. I mean, it really is about unique individuated sacred purpose. I mean, it depends what you're here to do in this lifetime. So if you really take that question to heart and if you really look deeply within yourself for indicators of past, then you never feel like you've sacrificed or lost anything by choosing something else because you know it's the direction you're here to walk. Yeah. I mean, I met my fiance, whom I believe we were three and a half years together. And I, this is the woman that I'm choosing to build with. Like I feel it in my deep in my bones and I know she does too. And I've never, I mean, we met it when I was 41. She's 35. I was 41, but boy, I sure tried. I don't know, tried what that means, but you know, I was, I thought I was supposed to do this for the last 20 years and it just, it always felt like kind of like false path, even though in some ways, thank God I went through all of that insanity because it's so informs the work I do today, working with couples and relationships. Well, in this survivalist world, in a survivalist consciousness, you have to suffer through all kinds of things to find your way to your true path. <laughs> you're not taught to think about your true path. I mean, yeah. who the hell talked about truth eggs 35 or 40 years ago? Nobody. But when I created that term, I couldn't believe it that it was nowhere to be found. It seems so obvious to me. Right, right, this right. What my experience was. So coming from a survivalist consciousness, which is what we're dealing with in the world, yeah. to a more authentic consciousness, the distinction between defining yourself by what puts food on the table yeah. versus defining yourself by who you really are and why you're here, these are two completely different planets. And so yeah. many people you encounter in your work and I encounter in mine have got have bought into the survivalist framework, which is all they had conditioned into them yeah. and is the world in the marketplace we're dealing with. And now they're starting to wake down and go, why am I here? I'm getting indicators. I'm here for something else. And their whole life is set up in a completely different way. And so we, you know, we are the pioneers in this question, all of us right now. And we yeah. can't go hard on ourselves when we can't 
figure it all out. I have worked like an animal wildebeest, like nobody I have ever met just to reach the stage where I could actualize this calling to write and express it, have this conversation with you and make a sustainable income from it. I'm 56 years old. That only started to happen into my fifties. Wow. You said an interesting word there, wake down. What do you mean by that? Well, I, you know, I, well, we can have a grand spirituality conversation, but I'm not in, really particularly interested in the language of waking up. I'm not interested in the higher self. I'm not interested in rising above. I think this is all patriarchal spirituality, disembodied, dissociated, bifurcated. I think it's about waking down. I don't think it's about rising above. Mm-hmm. I think it's about going deeper within. I think it's about getting more rooted in this human experience. So much of the language of the New Cage movement and patriarchal spirituality is really about getting out of here and calling that an awakened experience. And to me, it's all self-avoidance masquerading as enlightenment. Yeah, I am so excited to have that conversation with you because, again, I, that is a deeply personal experience for me as well. Um, coming into the body, I want to, and I think we're going to table that for another podcast episode just to make sure we don't yeah. go too long with this. But I want to come back into relationship in this true path, false path. Because, yep, many of us, we're in relationships, even the relationship like mine with my partner, where I'm sure this is the woman I want to be with. And she has different sensitivities than I do. She has different comfort zones. She has a different culture, different way of being in the world. And I sometimes find myself, it's one of the challenges that she and I've had, and I'll keep it general out of respect for her. She's more, way more private than I am. Whereas I tend to be an open book. And right there, that has caused challenges. How do I, as a man, how do I, just as a human, how do I, how do I take whatever actions, write whatever words, speak whatever words, feel deeply, deeply true and deeply calling to me that yet my partner looks at and goes, eek, are you fucking crazy? You're going to do what? Or you've said what? Or you wrote what? Because she feels like you're sharing something that's private between the two of you. Is that why? As just one example, sure. Yeah, yeah, great. Or I mean, or it just could be there are just other ideas about how you know again our, our human stuff collides, and and there we are left with, particularly me as I think in that kind of identifying very much with masculine purpose and and needing to feel deeply connected to a mission and doing what I came here to do in life. And I mean, she has her own masculine purpose. You know, I have mine and. Not that I could even articulate that in you know specific details, but you know there are moments where like I feel so deeply called to do this thing. This feels like my true path, and over here, my partner, who I am committed to, it doesn't work for her. It causes her, you know, whether it's trauma arise or whatever's without telling stories about it. But you're not talking about the fact that you're saying it out loud publicly. Just the fact that you're doing it is where the collision happens. That, yeah. yeah. I mean, it could be something I'm saying, could be something I'm doing. Honestly, it's that, like, I, I'm trying to stay away from the details Yeah, yeah. just out of respect for her and our relationship. It's the agreement we have to keep things general, but that tension, I mean, if you sort of boil it down to the tension between, you know, I, I heard a man in, in a men's group I was in not long ago say this. He said, if I have to choose between succeeding at my, my mission, my work or my relationship, I will choose my mission. Yeah. Okay. So I'm inside of this day and night. I, I, we can go right into this. <laughs> I I'm with you on this question, General Reeves, which is how do we yeah. honor our mission and at the same time um, honor love relationship? So part of it is coming back to the question is, is love relationship part of your sacred purpose? Mm-hmm. For some people, the answer is absolutely no. You know, they recognize we're at a very complicated stage in the human relational field where it's all most of us can do to figure out our own stuff, let alone figure out how to relate to each other. And they just have a polar recall that's so demanding in the direction of something else. When I began to write Soul Shaping, it was very important that I stayed away from relationship and everyone I attempted failed miserably. Mm. There was no way that I could hold the space for all of my material that came up in connection and their material and then this collective material and the ancestral lineage, because everything comes up in that field, and actually sit down quietly and sensitively and feel good about myself enough to believe in myself enough to find that language moving through my bones. So, Mm. you know, sometimes it is absolutely wrong for you to try to unite in relationship in a committed sense if your mission absolutely demands all of your attention. But at the same time, the mission can change and the mission can encompass connection. I mean, we're always... Our missions are always relational. It's important to remember that. I was writing books 
for me and for humanity. It's always relational. It just mm-hmm. not be in that relational form. And I think we have to allow ourselves to not feel shamed and shunned and to allow ourselves, men and women, many women now are, it's changed so much, even more than most men that I know are moving in the direction of following true path that does not include monogamous attached relationship right now. And I totally honor that and understand that. Um, and then at a certain point, sometimes it shifts and you'd have to notice and be aware enough to know when the shift is upon you and then negotiate it in a completely different way. So it sounds like you have a mission in both directions and the complication is how to, it was easier to only have to write. It was just if I could just keep everything else away, I could do it. Yeah. But it's like, really all of this is true for you. So now you're in the fully in real, the whole mishpucha experience of everything is happening at once. And of course that's complicated. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I think fortunately and unfortunately for me, I feel like my mission currently is it's being expressed. And as I feel called and particularly even the few years before I met my fiance, it really was to, to dive into the intimate relationship, the realms of intimacy with another human being And because I think that had been such a deep, deep longing for me for most of my life and a zone of chaos and destruction and despair and hurt, despite my best intentions and surely with all my past partner's best intentions. So what's what I find, you know, even though this relationship has at times, because again, we just, there are some very real cultural gaps between us. And I do believe that also in general, man and woman inhabit very different worlds through just our biology of how hormones work and how they affect us viscerally. So I've been relating to this as though the the stretch that this relationship has required of me is it is my mission to lean into that, even as it's affected in a way, you know, changed how I may write or changed, shifted how I may do my work. It's fucking really called me into the depths of what I wanted to explore. And it's been excruciating at the same time at times. Yeah. That makes sense. It makes perfect sense. I mean, I think the important thing from my perspective is to be not to be too hard on ourselves. You know, we are pioneers in this way too. Mm -hmm. Any of us who are exploring the relational field, the trigger material, the wound mating, is this a wound mate dynamic? Is this a forward moving soulmate dynamic? These are questions they didn't ask before. They were just locked into duties, survival of structures, all the rest of it. This is a whole new world. We are uncovering the true traumatic nature of the holdings of all humans individually and collectively ancestrally on this planet through the connective field. And, you know, it is the portal to divinity. It is also the portal directly to the trauma that has yet to be realized and acknowledged and worked through. And so I think while we participate in that, we also have to understand the context for it and step back a little and go, okay, let's be gentle with each other and understand we are playing in a sandbox that nobody has really ever played in before. Yeah. This is mesmerizing. It is brilliant. It is fantastic. And you are never going to figure it all out in one lifetime. Not a chance. Yeah, I really get that. I really feel both very blessed to be alive at this time, to be be pioneering yeah. these conversations and these yeah. insights. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's really, really fun and there are times I have my moments of, of envy of the people that I know, even in my own family, who don't talk about this shit at all. They're just content to, they're still just kind of making the money, living there, doing their thing. And again, it's, you know, I envy it and I know I don't at all envy it. I'm really grateful to be living these questions in this inquiry. Hey, it would like be nice to have some peace in, <laughs> in the relational field break somewhat sustained period of time. It's a reasonable thing to want, you know, but we have stepped into, I mean, you know, this is a way to honor that kind of warrior male direct purpose piece of you. You are a pioneer, General Reeves. Thank you. You're not pioneering in the way you thought you might be pioneering. Yeah. But but you're doing, uh, um, the fact that you're even talking about this and that there are people listening is unbelievably important work. It's visionary work, but anybody who's ever been a visionary will tell you it is hard ass work and that's what's happening. Yeah. And I just want to also just give a shout out to my lovely lady, Sylvie Kukassian, because she is just an extraordinary human being. And I, and I think what makes all the difference for me that I've never experienced before is she's willing to lean in and stretch in her comfort zone and lean into her difficulties and, you know, get support and do her own inner work. And the two of us together doing that it ain't always easy and we have our, our breakdowns, 
but boy, the breakthroughs that we continue to experience and the, the deepening of our intimacy because we're both in this conversation and taking it on with, with eyes and arms as wide open as we can, it makes all the difference in the world. I just want to acknowledge her. Yeah, I want to acknowledge you. I think she's on Instagram, I, on my Instagram, and shares my stuff. And She does, yeah. yeah oh, wonderful energy. Good stuff. Good for yeah, you. Yeah, she's amazing, man. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, she's a big fan of your work, for sure. Shares her stuff often. Yeah. Thank you. Well, how do you navigate that tension between mission and relationship? How long have you been with your partner now? Yeah, so Susan and I got married in 2015, April 2015. I met her on... Uh, Facebook in 2013, really. She moved to Canada in 2014. And, you know, this book in particular was very hard on the relationship. It was very hard to sustain my any kind of presence for me on an emotional level while I was in a completely driven, pragmatic state while running businesses, teaching, writing courses to 100 students. I was overwhelmed and, and effective. Like, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like an old wily veteran. I kind of know how to manage and maneuver myself around like a hockey player who they call back to play for a team 12 or 15 years later. And he's got a few gimmicks up his sleeve. I have those. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, being able to be present, being able to be, I mean, ironically, I was writing a book about embodiment, really. And I had the hardest time being in my body because yeah. it's such a cerebral process. And so we did therapeutic work. We continue to do work. We learn how to language things differently. Because when you're in a pragmatic survivalistic state, you don't really care how you sound. Everything's about survival. Everything's about completing yeah. the mission. You know, so until you begin to understand that the mission includes kindness, gentleness, subtlety, and presence, <laughs> you, know, you got a problem. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine that. Well, we're continuing to maneuver through this and the aftermath of this process. You know, I mean, we, we both feel like we earned this book um, on mm. all levels because if you have that kind of a mission, a male or a female, that is so overwhelmingly overcharged, and you're trying to do it probably quicker than you should, your relationships are going to be strained. Well said. Thank you so much. There's just so much more I want to explore with you, Jeff, but I want to begin to, to land this conversation. And, and a question that I really love to ask all of my guests is, it's a big question, and it's this, what do you think is the, the greatest challenge facing men in particular these days? And what wisdom could you offer in the face of it? Yeah, I think it's just learning how to be connected to a more vulnerable, surrendered or receptive state while feeling as though they have to maintain uh, a more armored consciousness to deal with the world and the responsibilities they've been conditioned to believe that they have to assume and maintain. Yeah. And I, I don't have any simple answer for it. One of the things that helped me a lot was learning how to do what I call conscious armoring. So to learn the distinction between a more open receptive state and to understand the state that I have to maintain to manage the world at times and to begin to make that move into the world and the maintaining of that armor and that vigilance and all the rest of that, the social face, the sales face, whatever it is, not to get rid of all of it because sometimes you do need it in this world at this stage. But to make that a conscious process where you do that because you know you have to do it, and then you know when you come back home to remind yourself that you can take it off and start to reconnect yourself in a more integrated way. So I think the first step for most men at this stage is just to make that process a conscious one. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm also struck by in your work, and when I saw your movie Carmageddon, your documentary many years ago, you did this practice. And it's something that I also have brought into my life. I work with my clients as well, but it was, there was a lot of, um, I call it emotion yoga or anger yoga. Yeah. A lot of moving. Discharging that, anger. Healthy discharging of anger, right? That's right. Exactly. Healthy discharge and creating a container for it so that we're not taking it out on others and taking it out on ourselves. Absolutely. So I have a foam cube in the house, which is the cube that I use to smash Bhagavan Das's face in the, <laughs> the baseball bat. Yeah. And I read his picture with the bat and it was just the most wonderful release of all. And, you know, I use the cube and Susan sometimes uses the cube to discharge anger appropriately. So if you don't have a cube, you don't have the money to go and have a cube built, the foam cube built. And you can watch the Carmageddon trailer if you just want to see it for free and you'll see what I'm talking about. You can get a mattress and get, you know, plastic bats at Walmart or something very affordable and move that anger. And if you're angry at particular people doing anger work around your parents, photocopy pictures of them, attach them to whatever it is you're hitting, shred those pictures, move that anger, 
just keep moving the anger. There's so much anger that we're holding. And yeah, it's been yeah. so vilified for very good reasons culturally. It's vilified the spiritual world. God forbid you should be angry. You just yeah. have to officially forgive all day long. It's insanity. And Oprah has something to do with that teaching. You know, so allow yourself to bring anger back into your integrated self, make it part of your actively part of your life, and understand the difference between a container that's released and a container that's holding on to too much material. The one beautiful thing about anger work is that when you do it, you begin to actually realize that you send a signal to your inner child that you're able to protect yourself. And as a result, you become more able to connect primarily to your material and to your vulnerable self because you know that you can take care of yourself when you have to. And to me, that was one of the best side effects of doing anger work. It allowed me to become interestingly a more vulnerable person because I knew I could be angry when I needed to. Yeah, I had a, a really transformative experience doing that a couple of years back where my it actually had to do with something I had written that I'd written a couple of years earlier. And then it turned out my stepfather got wind of it because it was something that I was angry about in my childhood. And it just it, it was something that affected me as a man. And so yeah, I write about these things. And my stepfather got really he got really upset. And all I got was a phone call from my mom saying, uh, just this message, Brian, why is your stepfather? He's so angry. Why did you write that? Why did you? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'd written it two years earlier. I don't know how all of a sudden he just found it. But when I realized what he was angry about, I became even more enraged because I was the victim in this story. Like because you weren't allowed to write what you wrote. That's right. right. I was the victim in this story. And I remember, I remember from that place, Jeff, I was ready. Oh, you think that was bad? Wait till you see what I write next. You know, nuclear option. That was sort of my, you know, if I don't get this out of me, that's what's coming. I will blow up this family. And I remember I went on a hike at night out in the the beautiful Calabasas open spaces just north of Los Angeles. And I went on a hike. This was about 11 o'clock at night. And I murdered that man on my hike. I murdered him. I mean, had, had anyone been hiding in the bushes or come or just been around the bends, they would have called the police because I was murdering him. And I, for probably two hours, and I remember going through that experience just and all this stuff, all the anger was, it wasn't pretty, it wasn't spiritual. No, it was murder in a sense. But again, no one was there to witness or, or, and when I came back down from that hike, I was shocked at where I was. What happened was I actually wrote him an email and I apologized. And that felt genuine and and not totally genuine. And not only did I apologize, Jeff, I actually changed what I wrote. Well, your whole respect respect for changes when you move the anger, right? It was incredible. It saved, I believe that that practice saved my family in a sense. It saved the relationships because if he wasn't going to move past his anger and if I didn't, you know, there were two strong personalities, it would have been fuck you, buddy. We don't ever have to talk again. And I remember I was so surprised that I had actually even went back and changed what I had written. But at the time, for me, it's like, you know, asking Picasso to, you know, put that, you should put the boob over here. It doesn't really go well over there. You know, move the boob over there and put the eye back where it belongs. You know, no way. I didn't have access to that until I did that practice. So I was astounded at how that shifted everything for me. So I, I really enjoyed seeing you do that in the film Carmageddon and, and knowing that's such a big part of your practice. Well, I mean, it, it just gives people permission to get connected to legitimate anger and move the anger in a way that doesn't hurt anybody. Yeah, I think that's the first time I've heard the word boob in the last five years. <laughs> well, you're not hanging out with enough adolescent men, boys then. <laughs> Apparently not. Hey, Brian, have you read An Uncommon Bond? I have not. Wow. Well, you'll send me an address. I definitely have to send you that book. Please. Yes. And I want to, you know, Jeff, I was just so, when I spent time with just soul shaping, man, I mean, you should, you know, I'm going to, you may not be able to see this, but I mean, it's so marked up. I have so many notes and I I so fell in love with your journey and your insight and your, and I get that, you know, I think that's the sign of a sane mind is what you wrote, whatever it was, 10, 15, 20 years ago. You don't, necessarily see it the same way. You wouldn't write the same thing anymore. I know I wouldn't write the book that I have on Amazon. I wouldn't write that book again. Well, you know, it's interesting that soul shaping, you know, it it has a lot more spiritual bypassing in it now than I would ever allow myself. (laughs) Uh I can see the beginning of this journey to try to make sense of, I started with psychology. I didn't start with spirituality. So then I was starting to, and I had the uncommon body experience in 98. I was just coming into this experience of unity through the body and spirituality. 
And now I understand it in a much different and more integrated way. And I lean more in the direction of the somatic psychotherapeutic path of spirituality than anything I've ever experienced at a spiritual sangha. Um, so it's yeah. interesting if I went through that book again, what percentage of it remained and it would probably only be about 70% of it. I think. Yeah. Well, I just the same. I want to encourage our listeners still to, to get soul shaping, to get that. No, book. It's helpful. I think it's helpful for a lot of people at the stage in the process yeah. where they're beginning to try to make sense of all of this, you know? Yeah, absolutely, man. I think it's still just the same. Although you say that you would see a lot of spiritual bypassing in there, I still see an incredible amount of honoring the body and honoring the emotions and honoring the experience. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you for reminding me not to diss my first book so much. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> And I want to definitely have you back on and really dive into grounded spirituality because there's just, I think that is such an important conversation for this time. You're right. Yeah. It is so timely. There's a, as we're waking up to trauma, waking down and, uh, you know, waking down I, to trauma, yeah, yeah. not to give you an attitude, but yeah, I, I mean, I, this is not to overstate the significance of this book, but I think we're at a stage in the species is at a stage where we're at risk and, I think if we keep mainstreaming spiritualities that bifurcate our consciousness, dissociate us, take us up and out, following new cage nonsensical practices, all the rest of it, we are not even going to notice what's happening to ourselves or to the world around us. We need embodied, grounded, inclusive spiritualities that get us more deeply here, embodied, in our hearts, in our bodies, yeah. in our awareness, seeing one another, not looking vertically, looking horizontally at what's happening to the planet itself and the environment, and the forest right across the street from me. If I keep looking up and out for my masterful experience, I don't even give a shit about any of that. And we don't really have time to play these silly games, pondering our navels on the top of mountains, sitting in meditation caves, pretending we're the enlightened masters bringing good things to the village, while the real human beings struggle in the village itself. Those are the enlightened ones. Those are the awakened ones. And we need a spirituality that really understands that that's true. So I'm going to read Uncommon Bond and Grounded Spirituality and really prepare, although I have so much personal experience to bring to, that I've been hurt myself and I'm sure have hurt others in my spiritual bypassing. And I think that's- I'd love to talk about that. That'd be a great conversation. That'll be a really great conversation. I really look forward to that. So, but today I want to finish now with uh, what I call the five key takeaways, five key takeaways finale to give our listeners some things to hook onto that they can- run away and, and begin to work with. Right. And by the way, if you're driving or at the gym, you don't have to write any of this down. It's all going to be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash men this way podcast. So don't sweat it. All right. Key takeaway number one, Jeff, key insight. What's the one key insight you would offer listeners that you believe can make a meaningful impact on their lives because it has in yours? Excavate your trauma, continue to work through the material, and do not for one second think that that's not part of your spiritual life. It is your spiritual life. Beautiful. Thank you. In my relationship with Sylvie, you know, it's really working with trauma, both hers and discovering that, holy shit, I have trauma too, has been really groundbreaking and, and so important. Compared to the ultimate vision of possibility for human functioning, we are all trauma survivors, all of us. Yeah. Thank you. Number two, key mentor. Name another man that you've been inspired by, living or dead, that you would recommend our listeners to learn more about. Alexander Lowen, Bioenergetics. Buy his book, Bioenergetics. Buy his book, Joy. Watch his videos. Pay real close attention to everything that man had to say. You may not agree with all of it, but this guy really, really understood that embodiment is spirituality, and he had all kinds of practices that will show you exactly what I'm talking about. Beautiful. Thank you. And again, this will all be in the show notes at brianreeves.com. It's brian with a Y, reeves.com slash men this way podcast. Key resource, your most impactful, inspiring book, movie, or podcast of the last year. And yes, you're allowed to name your own. Um, you know, we, Susan and I watched this four or five part miniseries on Netflix. It was, what was her name again? What was the Flash, the woman in Flashdance's last name? Oh, God, I have no idea. Okay, but it was the same last name. It was about, um, I'm going to let you know, maybe you can put it in the show notes. Okay, I will. What was it about? It was about a woman who was on a, on a, just on a beach and acted out and killed a guy on the beach. She was just with her boyfriend and he was huh. with her girlfriend. And you had no idea where on earth this came from. And so really the, the show was about this penetrating 
insight, attempt to understand what was going on in her inner world. And ultimately, it was repressed trauma that was manifest somatically in a particular way, particular individual. Um, wow. She had no awareness of it, no understanding. Everything had been buried and repressed. And by the end of it, it all made perfect sense. And it wow, there's something in that for everybody. And I will find it. I will yeah, ask. we'll definitely put that in the show notes. I know I want to watch that with Sylvie. So please. Great. My next one, uh, the number four, key investment. This is actually one of my favorites. I always find this one fascinating. It's the key investment in the last year, what's the best thing that you've spent money on under $10,000? I went uh, recently to the Shivananda Yoga Ashram in, in the Bahamas for a week after finishing this Prashtinkana book and uh, <laughs> begin to remember just the beginning of remembering that I had a body and getting off mm. caffeine and regenerating my liver, and I came back with a ton more energy than when I started, and I began to feel alive again. So yeah, going away and surrendering to my body and taking good care of myself in an ashram was perfect. How long were you there for? I was there for uh, eight days. Eight days. Yeah, I needed 80 days, but it was still uh, it was a wonderful beginning. If you've never been to Shivananda Yoga Ashram in Paradise Island, Bahamas, you've got to go there. It is quite a trip. I mean, there's that whole Paradise Island hotel world, the Starbucks on the main floor. And then there's this ashram that's been there forever with amazing veg food, fantastic yoga, gorgeous beach, super affordable, and just wonderful people to be around. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. And finally, the key practice, please offer one consistent practice, spiritual, creative, personal, or relational that has served you well and that you challenge our listeners to take on for the next seven days. Uh, a, a massage, honestly, uh, body work. I've been getting weekly massage for 25 or 30 years. I wouldn't be here if not for it. And it's allowed me by using various modalities, craniosacral, watsu, Thai massage, reflexology, Swedish massage, all kinds of massage to access experience and explore myself in all kinds of different ways. It allows me to come back to myself, to get fluid again in the culture itself but it also allows me to peel away various layers and explore different parts of me that I've not even been in touch with sometimes for the entirety of my adulthood. Massage has been a huge part of my somatic practice in terms of my emotional healing. Yeah, I just had a massage last night, actually. Nice. Sylvie and I were both committed to getting massages regularly. It's uh, like you've said this a few times, but when I get a massage, it reminds me, oh, I have a body. Absolutely. We, I mean, we are such, even the non-head trippers are head tripping in this culture because of the overstimulated nature of it. You have to go yeah. into your mind to manage all the stimulation. And we need constant reminders that we live inside of a body and that we are our body. Yeah. And it's the easiest thing to forget. So keep getting body work. To have that connection again, to sustain yourself on a health level. And if you have space to even go deeper and deeper into the tissue to uncover material that wants to be healed and moved through so you don't have to carry it anymore. And I think I want to also just acknowledge for men that touch is so connecting. Touch is so important for us. It's how oxytocin gets released in our body. It's And there's such a phobia for men around touch with touching other men or being touched by a woman who's not your partner or being touched in non-sexual ways by a woman. I think it's profoundly healing in so many ways for us men to be touched regularly. And massage is a great way to, to experience Absolutely. That. It stimulates on all kinds of different levels. Yeah. Jeff, where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're up to? So um, Soul Shaping Institute, I teach some online stuff there. We're going to grow that a lot soon. We're developing a new jeffbrown.co site that should be up probably sometime in mid-June. I'm going to start podcasting, doing all kinds of other things. Soulshaping.com is my main site. It's kind of clunking along, but there's some downloadable courses there, Sacred Feminine Rising, Inner Child Healing Courses there. Um, And inrealment.com is my publishing house. You can find my books there, and then you can go onto Amazon and find them more affordably there. And my main Facebook page is facebook.com slash soul shaping. And I'm on Instagram now actively as well. And I, I actually quite love it there. So all that again will be in the show notes, Jeff Brown. Thank you so much for saying yes to this, man. It is such an honor to meet you and speak with you and have this conversation with you. And and I'm excited to do this again in the future. Thanks, Brian. You're just doing fantastic. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you again to Jeff Brown. You can find Jeff at soulshaping.com, soulshapinginstitute.com, jeffbrown.co, and realmint.com, a whole bunch of places, and on Instagram, 
at Jeff Brown Soul Shaping. And of course, all of these links and resources and Jeff's five key takeaways will be in the show notes at brianreeves.com slash men this way podcast. It's Brian with a Y, reeves.com slash men this way podcast. And Jeff and I will definitely do another episode soon. So subscribe to this podcast to be sure to hear it. That one is going to be juicy as we dive into the persistent culture of trauma bypassing, boundaries bypassing, and more ways we harm ourselves and each other in the pursuit of spiritual attainment. Well, any attainment for that matter. And if you were served by this and think that others should hear it too, please share this episode or just leave a review on your podcast app so that you too can lead more men this way. I'm your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves, Brian with a Y, Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired.